are listening to the teaching ministries of Southwest Church, located in the heart of Springboro, Ohio, at 150 Remick Boulevard, beside the Kaufman Family YMCA. Please visit our website at www.southwestchurch.org. We are wrapping up this Dark Side series. This is week four of four, and we have talked about some serious, heavy stuff up to this point, and we'll continue on through this morning. You know, week one, uh, all of these were looking at uh, Old Testament figures, historical figures from then. So we started out, uh, week one was just the topic of grief, looking at the life of David, who had uh, many moments from her, his own life that were uh, just tragic in every sense of the word. Following that, looking at uh, his son Solomon, and uh, though he was wise and effective in many areas of his life, he had so many addictions that uh, negatively impacted his own life. So we were in the world of addiction. And then last week, uh, looking at Jacob and just family dysfunction and lying and manipulation. And then this morning, looking at the life of uh, Saul, King Saul. Uh, we're in the world of depression, in the world of even bipolar disorder, getting that specific. So uh, King Saul, he is, in my opinion, one of the most interesting and paradoxical figures in all the Old Testament. Uh, his life is encapsulated in the book of First Samuel, and looking at his life, we see this fascination, fascinating portrayal of uh, this guy who'd become the very first king of the nation of Israel. Uh, right before the book of 1 Samuel, before that, it uh, concerns the time of the judges. And if you read the book of Judges, 20-some chapters, uh, many times it says that there was no one who ruled over them at that time, and that everyone did as he saw fit, no authority over themselves. And you can imagine what happens when everyone's kind of uh, living their own way. Anyway, so uh, we get on the scene with 1 Samuel chapter 1, uh, the guy who's name we get for First Samuel, Samuel, he eventually rises up to be pretty much the authority in every sense of the word over all of Israel. He, uh, he uh, lives out the role of judge, he lives out the role of priest, and he lives out the role of prophet. So he was the political, spiritual figure of the entire nation of Israel. And eventually, Samuel anoints Saul plucks him out of obscurity and says, you are going to be the first human king. And if you want like the main lesson out of 1 Samuel, it pretty much comes down to, hey, this is, this is the bad things. This is the uh, downward spiral things can take when people want a human leading them instead of wanting God leading them. So Saul becomes this uh, huge object lesson. And hey, this is what you get when you follow this faulty, imperfect person. Anyway, uh, it's not all bad as far as King Saul goes. You know, he was uh, very successful in leading a number of military campaigns. And for a time, he even took the future, more famous King David under his wing. But as we'll see this morning, uh, Saul had a lot of very serious problems. Uh, When we read excerpts from his life, we see someone who had unpredictable moods and wildly contradictory behaviors. You know, he could go from very insecure and timid to very bold and demanding, all within even just a few verses or even chapters. And sometimes his behavior could be described as manic, and it was also pretty clear that this guy suffered from depression. And on top of all that, he regularly lived with fear, anxiety, and paranoia, all on a regular basis. So this is the guy that we're learning from this morning. 
Now, if we were diagnosing Saul today, uh, you can read articles, both medical and scholarly. It was pretty clear uh, from those who know this stuff that he suffered from bipolar disorder, at least at a certain point in his life on until the day of his death. And at the very least, he suffered from depression. Now, uh, anytime we gather in this room, you know, we want to leave more obedient to God's word and we want to leave more uh, encouraged and lifted up, but uh, also we want our time to be meaningful and that can look uh, different for a lot of different people. So uh, I'm going to throw up, you know, I have a few goals for us this morning. I want everyone kind of leaving on the same page. Uh, So uh, first thing is this, Uh, I want all of us here to leave encouraged that Uh, mental disorders, diseases, these are things that God understands and views graciously. So I want everyone leaving this way with that. Second thing is this, is I want everyone to be encouraged that uh, counseling can be and often is, if not all the time, a good and holy thing. And then the last piece is this, because uh, we don't want to leave Saul completely off the hook with this disorder, is this. Uh, we want to learn from Saul's life that while there were things about his mental illness that he could not control affected some behaviors, there were also things that he simply chose to do that led to him making his own life worse. So that's kind of where I want to leave this morning, and uh, we can kind of leave on the same page as far as that goes. Now, uh, we're going to be in like three major uh, sections, you know, we, like Saul's life takes over, I think, over 20 different chapters. So we're not going to get all of these, but I picked out three different episodes. But before we get into those episodes, I don't know if this is helpful for you, but especially in a series where it's all, you know, focusing on one guy. I'm a movie person, so I like to cast these, these figures. So, you know, David, Solomon, Jacob, I cast someone from the movies in this role. Again, you might be thinking, who cares, Andrew? You do your own thing, but this might be helpful to all of us. So uh, playing the role of the manic depressive, you know, all over the place, King Saul, I've cast Daniel Day-Lewis who most recently played Lincoln. I just can't think of anyone who can play just such a wide uh, array of emotions and behaviors and all that just so, so well. So this might mean nothing to you, but that's who I have in my role. So especially since uh, we are in three major sections of scripture, uh, you might be playing you know, with your head movies like I will. So we're going to go uh, forward with that. Uh, so we are in the book of 1 Samuel, like I said before, and uh, taking a look at a few major moments that would have a major impact on all of Saul's life. So uh, I'm reading first out of 1 Samuel 13. Each of these I'm reading out of the message since it's very story-driven and focused this morning. The message just kind of lends itself to, uh, uh, it just lends itself to that kind of reading and taking in. So uh, first piece from 1 Samuel 13. Says the Philistines rallied their forces to fight Israel, three companies of chariots, six companies of cavalry, and so many infantry, they looked like sand on the seashore. And they went up into the hills and set up camp at Michmash, east of Beth Avon. And when the Israelites saw that they were way outnumbered and in deep trouble, they ran for cover, hiding in caves and pits, ravines and brambles and cisterns, wherever. They retreated across the Jordan River, refugees fleeing to the country of Gad and Gilead. But Saul held his ground in Gilgal, his soldiers still with him, but scared to death. He waited seven days, the time set by Samuel. Samuel failed to show up at Gilgal, and the soldiers were slipping away right and left. I'll pause. Samuel's job as prophet, priest, judge, his job was to come do some sacrificing so that God would hand the enemy over to the Israelites. Anyway, so Saul took charge. Bring me the burnt offering and the peace offerings. He went ahead and sacrificed the burnt offering. No sooner had he done it than Samuel showed up. Saul greeted him. Samuel said, what on earth are you doing? 
Saul answered, When I saw I was losing my army from under me, and that you hadn't come when you said you would, and that the Philistines were poised at Michmash, I said, The Philistines are about to come down on me in Gilgal, and I haven't yet come before God asking for his help. So I took things into my own hands and sacrificed the burnt offering. That was a fool thing to do, Samuel said to Saul. If you had kept the appointment that your God commanded, by now God would have set a firm and lasting foundation under your kingly rule over Israel. As it is, your kingly rule is already falling to pieces. God is out looking for your placement right now, and this time he'll do the choosing. When he finds him, he'll appoint him leader of his people, and all because you didn't keep your appointment with God. Now, we want to be fair in looking at this. You know, King Saul is not in a position that many of us would be envious of. You know, as king, and especially as a soldier, his stress level is unbelievably high, and he is about to go to war with a formidable and terrifying army. None of us would want to be in this situation. And on top of that, his own soldiers, they're going AWOL left and right. And in order to win this battle, Samuel the prophet, the priest, the judge, was supposed to do some sacrificing to God so that God would in turn bless the Israelites with victory over the Philistine army. Samuel is the only one who's allowed to do this by custom, by ethics, by law, everything. But he's late. No one knows where he is. There's just a lot of waiting around. So what King Saul does, and honestly, many of us might do the same thing. He takes a very bold step of action and he does it himself. This was a mistake. And it was a mistake that would lead to, uh, well, not even lead to, this mistake was a turning point in his life from potential of being this awesome, effective king to an unstable and troubled life and kingship. So if you're someone who likes to write things down, this might be a time to do that. I have uh, pulled out a few things, a couple uh, choices where things just went wrong, a couple crucial mistakes that Saul made. The first was this. Saul was very faithful until he started losing control. And as soon as he started losing control himself, that is when he stopped trusting God in this situation. He was faithful until things started going wrong, when things started falling apart all around him. The second part is this. Saul was very quick to blame others. Most everyone in this room can rightfully claim to have a stressful life. We have bills to pay, assignments to get done, projects that are due, uh, families to support, and relationships that we want to keep strong and healthy. All these things take a lot of work and effort on our part. So it's not an uncommon feeling for us to sometimes or maybe often feel like we are losing control. But you can probably tell, you can look at your life, uh, someone else's life, I can look at my own life and know that when that overwhelming feeling comes on us, then the difference in how well it goes always comes down to, are we going to wait on God and include him in our decision, or are we going to push him to the side? You know, just like Saul, we can do the same thing. We can say to him, you know, God, you're being too slow. You're just not doing your job. Step aside and I'll handle this. Perhaps you've made that crucial mistake, maybe more than once, which is exactly what Saul did. And Saul was very quick to blame others, as said before, when things weren't going right, when he was confronted by Samuel. You can read back at his dialogue, you weren't here when you said you'd be. The Philistine army is all around me, pressuring me, coming down on me, and my men are fleeing one by one. At no point 
does he take any responsibility or leadership upon himself? Passes the bucket every opportunity. He was playing this blame game to rationalize the fact that he was not going to trust God in this situation. And this was a big enough sin that God effectively said, you're not worthy to be king over my people. I need someone who knows how to put me first. That's one episode uh, from Saul's life. Here's another from 1 Samuel 15 going on. Samuel and Saul are back at it again. That Samuel said to Saul, God sent me to anoint you king over his people, Israel. Now listen again to what God says. This is the God of the angel army speaking. I'm about to get even with Amalek. That's a neighboring tribe, a neighboring nation for ambushing Israel when Israel came up out of Egypt. Here's what you are to do. Go to war against Amalek. Put everything connected with Amalek under a holy ban and no exceptions. This is to be total destruction. Men and women, children and infants, cattle and sheep, camels and donkeys, the works. Then Saul went after Amalek from the canyon all the way to Shur near the Egyptian border. And he captured Agag, king of Amalek, alive. Everyone else was killed under the terms of the holy ban. Saul and the army made an exception for Agag and for the choice sheep and cattle. They didn't include them under the terms of the holy ban. But all the rest, which nobody wanted anyway, they destroyed as decreed by this holy ban. Then God spoke to Samuel. I'm sorry I ever made Saul king. He's turned his back on me. He refuses to do what I tell him. Samuel was angry when he heard this. He prayed his anger and disappointment all through the night. He got up early in the morning to confront Saul, and he was told, Saul's gone. He went to Carmel to set up a victory monument in his own honor, and then was headed for Gilgal. By the time Samuel caught up with him, Saul had just finished an act of worship, having used Amalekite plunder for the burnt offering sacrifice to God. As Samuel came close, Saul called out, God's blessings on you. I accomplished God's plan to the letter. Samuel said, so what's this I'm hearing? This bleeding of sheep, this mooing of cattle. Only some Amalekite loot, said Saul. The soldiers, they saved back a few of the choice cattle and sheep to offer up in sacrifice to God, but everything else we destroyed under the holy ban. Enough interrupted Samuel. Let me tell you what God told me last night. Saul said, go ahead, tell me. And Samuel told him, when you started out in this, you were nothing and you knew it. Then God put you at the head of Israel, made you king over Israel. Then God sent you off to do a job for him, ordering you, go and put those sinners, the Amalekites, under a holy ban. Go to war against them until you have totally wiped them out. So why did you not obey God? Why did you grab all this loot? Why, with God's eyes on you all the time, did you brazenly carry out this evil? Saul defended himself. What are you talking about? I did obey God. I did the job God set for me. I brought in King Agag and it destroyed the Amalekites under the terms of the holy ban. So the soldiers saved back a few choice sheep and cattle from the holy ban for sacrifice to God at Gilgal. What's wrong with that? Then Samuel said, do you think all God wants are sacrifices? Empty rituals just for show? He wants you to listen to him. Plain listening is the thing, not staging a lavish religious production. Not doing what God tells you is far worse than fooling around in the occult, which Saul will do later. 
Getting self-important around God is far worse than making deals with your dead ancestors. Because you said no to God's command, he says no to your kingship. Saul gave in. He confessed, I've sinned. I've trampled roughshod over God's word and your instructions. I cared more about pleasing the people. I let them tell me what to do. Oh, absolve me of my sin. Take my hand and lead me to the altar so I can worship God. But Samuel refused. No, I can't come alongside you in this. You rejected God's command. Now God has rejected you as king over Israel. God had a very simple mission for Saul. Destroy the Amalekite people completely. That's people, that's animals, that's property. Saul lets the Amalekite king live. He steals all the best loot and all the best animals, and he destroys the stuff that nobody really wanted anyway. And Saul actually thinks that he has been obedient in all of this. He cannot see the truth, the reality of his situation. In Samuel, in his role, he does a very good job of pointing out where Saul went wrong. From my reading and study of this, here were a couple issues at play. One, obviously, Saul did not obey what God told him. Second was this. Saul cared so much more about people's wishes than God's wishes. You know, Saul honestly thought that he was being obedient, even though he didn't come anywhere near it. That's the place he got to in his life. He couldn't see what the truth was. He could not see that he was anything less than 100% obedient. But from the outside looking in, from us looking at the words on the page, it's very clear that he was nothing but disobedient. And then regarding that number two item, just the same, we know that if we make a continual habit of giving into what the people around us want at the expense of honoring Jesus, our lives are simply going to get worse. This wasn't a one-time thing in the life of King Saul. If you read the entire narrative that happens in 1 Samuel, you'll see that this was a pattern. You know, in this moment, you know, Saul, he repents in his mind. He is sorry, but there's no behavioral follow-up. There's no true repentance. There's no change in behavior. So when you make a pattern out of this, continual disobedience and continual uh, just giving into what people want instead of what Jesus would have you do, Simple truth is, our lives are going to get worse. Just as it happens with King Saul. Uh, the next chapter, 1 Samuel 16, we're not going to read it, but it sees Saul afflicted with what Scripture calls a tormenting spirit. In Hebrew, uh, if you want to repeat this, I think it's fun whenever I get to say out loud Hebrew words. The Hebrew word for tormenting spirit is ruach ra'ah. So if you want to say that, if you, well, if you maybe cover the back of your neck, because you'll get spit on you from behind. But if you want to say, I just want to see you like all of us speaking Hebrew, just say, Ruach Ra'ah. And say, the, I love it. But that's what it's called. And from here on out, this is where Saul's bipolar disorder becomes very clear. Uh, so let's, there are a number of ideas on exactly what bipolar disorder is. So we'll kind of uh, define this now. This is taken from a medical article that kind of blends in a study with the life of Saul. It says uh, that bipolar disorder is not defined solely by episodes of depression, similar to the ones that Saul faced, but also includes uh, the person experienced unforeseen or extreme manic or mixed episodes. 
Uh, during a manic episode, the person can exhibit symptoms such as inappropriate behavior, bizarre speech, an irritable mood. And uh, the best example, which we won't read, but you can explore later, of one of Saul's episodes is when he is once again afflicted with this tormenting spirit, this ruach ra'ah. Saul raves incoherently in his house and repeatedly attempts to kill David by hurling a spear at him. If you want to explore that, that's in 1 Samuel 18. And that's not the only time he does this. But shortly after that, after attempting to kill David, Saul appoints him as a military officer, which is a sign of respect and trust, and he proceeds to give him his daughter in marriage. And just a little while later, this tormenting spirit comes upon Saul again, and he returns to attempting to kill David. That's in 1 Samuel 19. So within just a few verses, Saul's treatment of David, it goes between uh, life-threatening and overwhelmingly encouraging. Complete opposite side of the spectrum. He is all over the place, all in there. And then we see, you know, he also shows aggression, disturbed thought patterns, possibly even delusions due to this intense jealousy that he felt toward David. And all of these are signs of manic episodes. So you see this wide range of behaviors portraying Saul. It's clear he's cycling through both the sadness and the mania that defines bipolar disorder. Now, if Saul were alive today, it would be immediately clear that he needs help. You know, this is not normal behavior. It is abnormal behavior. But we know that in the time of history when he lived, there were simply uh, no ways to address this, no one to diagnose, no mental professionals to put a name, put a label to this issue. So when it comes to this disorder, Saul and everyone around him, they had to do their very best in coping with this thing that would never be diagnosed. They just had to live with this massive question mark on their toes all the time. Obviously, that is not our reality today. Thank God it's not our reality today. We know that there is so much more hope for us today, so many tools to help us through any emotional or uh, mental unhealthiness. Uh, When Roger, Larry, and I were planning this series, uh, uh, Roger said, you know, hey, you know, I'm going to be gone this particular weekend. Which of these would you like to cover? And uh, if I can relate to any one of these, I said, I'd like to do King Saul, which Roger wasn't surprised by that. And I want to do this just because it's probably most personal to me. I was looking at the calendar, and uh, one year ago, uh, this very week, I went to a Christian counselor for the first time. Uh, My life was relatively healthy, but also I started seeing some habits, some thought patterns, some behaviors where it was just going to lead to ministry burnout, uh, which is not something that... uh, you know, certainly if we're up here, you know, we love what we do for a living. I love being in ministry, but also just the nature of ministry. It's a lot of giving of yourself. It's a lot of making sure everyone else is okay. And it's super common for any pastor to uh, just not know how to take care of themselves. Or do we just feel selfish if we're giving ourselves too much attention and not other people? So I started seeing, you know, kind of warning signs of warning signs. And again, I love what I do for a living and I don't want to burn out. I don't want to endanger my calling. So I did what I thought was a difficult step. And it's like, okay, I just want to, I just need to take care of myself in this way. And in my mind, this was a hard step. Uh, even up to that point, I had recommended counseling for other people. I just had this stigma in my own mind. Uh, some of you might have this or maybe have had this in the past. You just had this idea of, yeah, I hear counseling's a good thing, but that's for unstable people. That's for people who are not like me. I'm fine, which is a complete lie. 
Anyway, so I go to this guy, and I did a nine or ten session, you know, from September on through, like, January, I think, something like that, maybe even December. And uh, I'm saying this because it was one of the very best things I ever did for myself. One of the more healthy things, uh, just... You know, I could speak and speak and speak just on the benefits I saw from that, just uh, learning things about myself, how I deal with people, how I might deal with stress, and just how I interact with the world. I cannot recommend this fast enough. So uh, one thing is I, I can say is even if you've had just a fleeting thought of, hey, maybe I should see somebody even just once, I would encourage you, yes, absolutely, try that out. I think you can be blown away by the benefits. And if anyone has gone through uh, counseling, hopefully Christian counseling, I think there's a difference. If you've gone that through yourself, I might encourage you to um, take a brave step and just say, hey, yes, this worked out really well for me. I might encourage it for someone else. I don't know if there's that stigma with you, but there has been with me in the past. Not anymore. I, I was talking about this you know, with some peers, and I find that people my age on down, it's really not a huge deal. It's like, oh, counseling? Yeah, of course. Why not? Um, but I've, in other conversations or just hearing, being on the sidelines, I know people older and older than me, there's more of a stigma attached to uh, just any type of counseling or seeking help. Uh, if I had my way, I would take the stigma out of the church altogether. I think this is the place where we can say, yes, this is a resource, this is a tool, this is a thing that we can do for ourselves, and it is a good and a holy thing. And there can also be this stigma. Again, this is going away more and more, but it still can exist in some conversations or some homes uh, that um, taking medication for, say, anxiety, depression, or even things more severe. And I would say that stigma probably should be taken away as well. I personally believe that God understands disease. He understands mood disorders. He understands chemical imbalances in the brains that some of us have zero control over. Uh, you know, I was doing you know some research and reading on this, and uh, I read that roughly half of all Jesus followers believe that prayer alone is enough to overcome any of this. And I would say that true that is true. Prayer can overcome anything. That's a reason why we pray to Jesus. But also, uh, I know that Jesus loves us and Jesus wants what is best for us. And I know that prayer plays a major role in bringing you know, peace, some stability, some security in our lives. But I also know 100% that God has blessed you know, so many people with intelligence and skills to medically and uh, spiritually address struggles and problems that some people may have. So just along with you know, counseling and therapy, I think that when used appropriately, of course, medication prescriptions can be a good and holy thing. You know, it's been said that uh, any mental or emotional disorder or struggle robs the person of their true self. Maybe you've heard that before. I know, you know, God has made each of us uniquely and purposefully, but because we're marred by this fallen world we live in, things like depression, anxiety, panic attacks, bipolar disorder, and self-harm, all these uh, things can or have or are affecting us or people that we love, even as we sit here. And with this is the reality, some of us just need help getting back to our true selves. You know, I think a great tragedy would be for us to get to the end of our lives and regret not exploring options that could have made us happier or healthier. Uh, we're going to read that King Saul himself did not have a very good end. He kind of met this end. He, I just imagine his life just full of regret. And we read about this in 1 Samuel 28, toward the end of his life. Just to set this up, uh, he is up against the Philistine army once again. 
And the Bible says that he is frantic with fear. He's paralyzed with indecision. He just wants somebody, anybody to tell him what to do. And at this point in his life, he is just so far from God that uh, his best choice in his mind is to go to a medium to conjure up Saul, or excuse me, conjure up Samuel to come back from the dead to tell him what to do. So this is where we find ourselves in 1 Samuel 28. Why have you disturbed me by calling me back? Samuel asked Saul. Because I am in deep trouble, Saul replied. The Philistines are at war with me, and God left, has left me and won't reply by prophets or dreams. So I have called for you to tell me what to do. But Samuel replied, Why ask me, since the Lord has left you and has become your enemy? The Lord has done just as he said he would. He has torn the kingdom from you and given it to your rival, David. The Lord has done this to you today because you refused to carry out his fierce anger against the Amalekites, that second episode that we looked at. What's more, the Lord will hand you and the army of Israel over to the Philistines tomorrow, and you and your sons will be here with me. The Lord will bring down the entire army of Israel in defeat. And Saul fell full length on the ground, paralyzed with fright because of Samuel's words. And he was also faint with hunger, for he had eaten nothing all day and all night. What Samuel said from the dead, it came true. The next day, Saul, he dies in battle. He actually takes his own life out of fear of being captured and tortured. You know, on the front, and I said that there were things about Saul's life that he could not control, such as his almost certain bipolar disorder. But there were patterns in his own life that Saul refused to address that led him to dying outside of a relationship with God. You know, looking around, obviously, we have a different setup for communion. We have communion, but also at Tails, you see these uh, pots. And in these uh, containers, there's a block, a cement block and a hammer inside. Uh, we're going to do something different kind of to end the morning and end this entire series, something symbolic. Hopefully, it can be uh, therapeutic in its own way. Uh, the reason we do communion uh, any given weekend uh, for a number of reasons. One is that we want to remember and recognize that Jesus comes to earth in order that there would be nothing standing between us and God, that there would be no separating that relationship. And that's the direction we're going to take with communion this morning. You know, uh, because we come here, because we call us Jesus followers, or at least that we're exploring Jesus, it's that uh, while, you know, depression or anxiety or, you know, fill in the blank might be affecting our lives, even if that can't be overcome, maybe if that's just going to be a part of our lives for the foreseeable future, that does not have to define us. We come here with the reality and the hope that Jesus, that relationship with him can define us more than anything else and that nothing outside of him would have power or control over us. So here's what we're going to do. You're invited to do this. At the tables, uh, we have communion. We have the bread to dip into the juice and take that. Uh, but also we have, you know, one, two, three, uh, four, five, and then six. This counts as one station. Either before or after you uh, take part in communion, uh, you are invited to take one of these pots 
and this can be a reflection of this morning or, you know, we've been through a lot with this entire series, you know, grief and addiction and dysfunction and manipulation. And this morning we're just in the world of uh, just uh, mental and emotional things get, can afflict us. So we did this last night. We want to do this this morning is you just take a pen and you just write down a word, a phrase, anything that you are sick of controlling you, anything that you just want to put to the side. And we just want to uh, have Jesus take the place of whatever might be just bearing us down, just might have that weight on our shoulders. This is a symbolic activity to go along with communion. So I'm going to pray for us, and you have communion, you have these things up here. Also, if you've come prepared to give, there are baskets up here for that. But I think this could be a very powerful moment to wrap up this entire series. It was uh, just a wonderful thing just to hear pots breaking, uh, you know, along with the music last night. Just people putting things to the side and embracing Jesus at the center. So I'll pray for us. The band will be up here. They'll have just some instrumental music for the communion. And then you can come up, write whatever you'd like on this pot, place it sideways on this block in here, and then we have hammers, and you get to break that open. So that's what we'll have for us. I encourage you to take part in this. Um, Outside of that, I'm going to pray. We'll have this meditation time. We'll sing, and then I'll have some closing closing, uh, thoughts and remarks. So pray with me if you would. Father, even up to this moment, even before walking in and uh, during that wonderful, moving time of musical worship to you this morning, my heart is soft. One thing I don't personally want to do is just write this morning off as another Sunday. Uh, There's just a lot at stake. Uh, I want to pray on behalf and for everyone in this room uh, to look at our hearts and look at our lives uh, honestly. We all walk in with pain and stresses and burdens on us that uh, it just takes a toll. So from this entire series, looking at uh, the behind the scenes, the dark sides of, uh, of our hearts, of our souls, the things that we don't let other people to see, I ask that we can look at that in our lives and that we can deal with it. That we don't hang on to it, that we can give it to you, that it would not be a obstacle, would not be a wall between us and you, but to be put to the side and Jesus can take that place. So in this time of communion, we honor and remember the reason Jesus comes to take that place, to offer us salvation and love and grace, but also that we can destroy, that we can break open these things that we've allowed to control us and rule our lives. So I pray on behalf of all of us that we'd have courage to break open these pots and this would be a moment that uh, we as a body of believers can share together. So help us with this. We invite your Holy Spirit to uh, push us if need be. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.